0: My guest today is Brad Lips, who is the CEO of the Atlas Network. And what do they do? Well, they are are a network of nearly 500 different think tanks that are dedicated to expanding freedom and free markets around the world. So he and I talk about a different way to help the poor and the marginalized in other countries and in our own. So how can we think differently about foreign aid in particular? What are the problems with it? What do we do wrong? And how can we actually help expand freedom, expand economic opportunity and lift people out of poverty? It's a great episode. You're not gonna wanna miss it. Stay tuned right after these messages. We run on the value for value model here on the Chris Spangle Show and the We are Libertarians podcast network. That means, do you get value out of the show? Do you learn something that helps you sound smarter when talking with your friends? Do you feel a little bit more connected to the world and inspired to do something a little bit differently? Well, then please give some value back. And the best way that you can do that is through our Patreon. You can go to supportcss.com or patreon.com slash libertarians, and you can join our Patreon. Not only do you support the program and the entire We Are Libertarians podcast network by helping pay all of the bills— you're also going to get ad-free shows. You're going to get early releases, sometimes months in advance in terms of episodes that haven't been released in the public feed yet. You'll also be able to get the full archives, the full RSS feed of all the past episodes, and there's even a tier that you can come on the show, or you can have your name mentioned every episode, like I am about to do right now. Thank you so much to our $100 a month members, especially Vincent Picole Matthew Durbin, jason doolittle christy avery and our good friend reinhold thank you so much for supporting us and we appreciate everybody that considers making a contribution today brad lips thanks so much for joining me here on the program thanks guys so tell me a little bit about yourself i know you've been at atlas for a long time how did you get involved in working in the liberty space what inspired you
1: Yeah. So I had an an uncle who had been involved in the LP back in the late 70s, and uh, he went to Cato Liberty Fund. He was trying to interest me back when I was in high school in the ideas of liberty, and it fell on deaf ears for some time. But after I got out of college, I wound up working on Wall Street for a little while, and then started to take a real big interest in public policy issues. I was turning to the op-ed page instead of the finance page that I I should have been paying attention to, and I figured I was young enough at that time that I could do a career change and try to devote myself to ideas that really, I came to think, are um, the most important in the world, and that could be a part of some interesting history, as I foresaw, as I understood the just the, the unaffordable nature of the, the entitlement state that we've built. I figured there was going to be some sort of comeuppance, <laughs> and I wanted to be working alongside the good guys to try to protect what has made the, the United States resilient, free society over centuries, as, as imperfect as we've been. And, and that was the impetus. And I, I wound up landing at Atlas Network 25 years ago and have found it to be a really fascinating place to, to call home.
0: L- let me go off on a tangent. What are the values that make America great? What were those uh, principles that inspired you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was brought into this via Ayn Rand and she started to make me realize that there, there is such thing as natural liberty and a way that people um, voluntarily interact when they look out for their own self-interest. And she liked to use the term selfishness. I don't think we have to, I um, think that's an off-putting way to, to phrase it. But if we're all looking out for, Um, how do we make the most of our own lives? There's something that's really noble about that. And it's something that I think hasn't been part of the cultural DNA in many other countries. And part of the way that we became resilient was by respecting everybody's right to their own property and their own dreams and let them make their own mistakes. And it was that kind of thinking that ushered in incredible productivity that we're all the beneficiaries of. But I think one of the things that you realize is that with all that cultural capital, you can coast for a while and you can make mistakes for a while, (laughs) but we can't do that forever. And I I fear that we've been eroding the cultural capital that has helped the U.S. be a a mostly free society for a long time. And if we don't all really appreciate this is something that has to be worked for intentionally, we're at risk of
0: losing it. Yeah, one thing that I like about your career and the books that you've written, you're the author of several books. I own a a couple of them, including your book on liberalism. You you may have Ayn Rand's selfishness kind of at the core, at the front there, right? But that's not really what motivates you every day in your work at Atlas and in your writing. It really is about peaceful cooperation and raising people up. And one of the things that I love about your work is that it's like – how can we empower the community to work together? So, how does hyper individualism and that concept of self ownership contribute to building a community that works for even the most poor and marginalized?
1: Yeah, I guess that maybe that's one of the um, one of the things that I came to. Uh really appreciate when I got involved with Atlas Network way back when. The Atlas Network is known within the liberty movement as a global organization with lots of international partners, lots of international aspects to the work that we do. And I started to take a real interest in how the way that these issues play out in other parts of the world helps us, I think helps normal people in the U.S. get out of their sort of uh, political tribes and to start to realize without this sort of defensive, well, whose team are you on? (laughs) They start to realize that sympathetic individuals who uh, have been excluded from the global economy, once you take to heart their interests, you start to realize why these principles of liberty really do work for everyone. And and for me, this has been a little bit of an aha moment about how we can talk to people that haven't read their Ayn Rand and Milton Friedman and Friedrich Hayek. Uh, I think that to people who have not been immersed in the literature that you and I care about, they can be very suspicious about people who talk about rational self-interest and all these ideas. One of the things that I love that Students for Liberty did some years ago is that they took that old Gadsden flag, don't tread on me slogan, and they switched it to don't tread on anyone. And that, I think, really does sum up our beliefs in a more coherent way. And for people who think that libertarians are selfish... If you take a look at the kind of work that Atlas Network gets to be involved in on a day to day basis, we explode those myths because it really is about thrill of finding out how you can work for the freedom of others and how that can uplift people who have been let down by the status quo. And that often is because of bad government policies that stand in their way.
0: So, Atlas is hard to define. If you, you're just looking at your website, you're like, okay, the network. Let me go here and click on, oh, okay. Africa, Asia, Europe, Latin America, US, Become a, what is going on here? Can, so, can you give us the Reader's Digest version of what Atlas does and how you affect change?
1: So, uh, Atlas Network was established uh, more than 40 years ago by a guy who had um, been a Royal Air Force pilot in World War II, came to be distressed at how Britain was going socialist. He met with Friedrich Hayek and said, I think I'm going to go into politics and set things right, uh, along the lines that you, Hayek, have have determined. But Hayek said, it doesn't work like that. You You have to, politicians are lagging indicators of change. They're not going to be the leaders of intellectual change. They're going to reflect what people think. And right now, people think socialism is great. you got to change that. This man, Anthony Fisher, created one of the first free market think tanks in the UK. And when that organization slowly gained credibility, and all of a sudden, 20 years later, Margaret Thatcher is saying, you know what, I'm campaigning on the ideas that you guys put into circulation. Lots of people started to come to Anthony Fisher to say, How'd you do it? This little organization on a small budget has changed the course of Britain. How can we do that again? And he, after he helped the Fraser Institute in Canada, uh, what became the Manhattan Institute in New York, and the Pacific Research Institute in California, um, he created Atlas as a way to, to to continue to replicate the experiment. So we're the hub of, of this network of more than 500 independent think tanks, all around the world, more than a hundred different countries. And yeah, they're all independent. We don't tell them what to do, but they come to us for training, for grant and prize competitions and for these networking events where they can learn from one another and uh, Lots of donors have come to appreciate that we are immersed in this world if they want to figure out what kind of organizations to invest in in those different regions you, you mentioned. Maybe they have an interest in Latin America. Well, We know how to spend money wisely on philanthropic projects there that are all based on policy uh, solutions that are grounded in liberty.
0: So let's talk about street vendors in India as an example of your work and an example of how libertarian ideas can be used to empower people who were paying crushing fines and then all of a sudden were able to start giving back to their community. Tell us what that's about.
1: Yeah. So it's really an interesting story. There's an organization in New Delhi, India called the Center for Civil Society. And initially they... Were ideological in how they approach things. They wanted to tell people about economic freedom, but that they learned that was off-putting. They that the way that people heard them talking Are you about saying the way the libertarians freedom, talk
0: is off-putting. Yeah, okay, I know. Yeah, way- yeah. You so try to
1: imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> but in in India, they said that people say if you don't have any economic means, like economic freedom doesn't mean anything. So you must be talking about economic freedom for the that one percent that actually does have wealth in our country. And, and that sort of missed the point. So they started to talk about their beliefs in a, in, with different language, talking about livelihood freedom. They started to realize like that one of the challenges is that you have all of these street vendors, all this, these entrepreneurs that are getting by through trading in the streets with no formal legal right to be there in the streets, that those m- tens of millions of people were being looked at by public officials as blight, as this tolerated nuisance, not as this engine of productivity that was actually, this is the activity that fed families and provided goods to, to people who needed them. They started to realize that there was something inherently wrong about this. They went about this long process to, first of all, establish the, the legal right for the street vendors to to operate their businesses. There had been this idea that you, know, you could never expand your business beyond the length of your arms because you had to be able to Grab the edges of the blanket where you had your wares and pull it all together and be ready to run off because you'd have police that were going to shake you down for bribes. They were going to confiscate your goods because you didn't have a right to be there. They changed the law so that the the street vending was actually um, appreciated as a legal part of society. And then they they realized that you don't have the signing a law doesn't mean that's going to change the way things work in practice. So they then had to go through this more painstaking process of helping create associations where street vendors would know how to actually enforce their rights against corrupt police that were continuing to harass them. So it's been this interesting project about, yeah, how do you change policy? And then how do you change that the way that the policy is implemented on the ground through grassroots mobilization? But at the end of the day, that the story is that you are suddenly legalizing the, the livelihoods of tens of millions of people who in the past were subject to shakedowns and confiscation by of their goods.
0: That's fascinating. And I think that kind of illustrates a message that uh, I saw in an article that you wrote in philanthropy.com to fend off threats to freedom worldwide, support local economic development. And the notion, I hear people talk about Foreign aid. Obviously, I think it's one of those concepts that everybody just thinks foreign aid is good. We should give foreign aid. We're a wealthy country to use outdated parlance. We're a first world country that should help third world countries, and we should take food and drop it in these places or take aid and give it to these countries. And that is seen as a form of compassion. But then when you really dig down, you're not being compassionate, you're not actually helping, and there's a better way. Let's start with diagnosing the aid system. What is wrong with the way that the American government does foreign aid?
1: Yeah, so much. <laughs> I think that when, when you look at the, the countries that have been the biggest recipients of foreign aid through the years, and this is you know mostly... Um, the countries of sub-Saharan Africa, these are the countries that have stagnated the most. The countries that have been able to escape poverty, countries like South Korea that were as poor as Ghana after World War II, but now are among the top 10 countries in per capita income, they didn't do it through by being dependent on foreign beneficiaries. They did it by opening up and engaging in the global economy. So I think that fundamentally, we have to recognize that a foreign aid is not a path to create vibrant economies. And often it has this perverse incentive of, of, of creating this or playing into a top-down top psychology where you're working with corrupt governments that are then able to parcel out the aid they're receiving in political ways that maintain their power, that make them less responsive to the citizens they're supposed to serve. So I think that there's a lot of perverse outcomes. And there was a movie that our friends at the Acton Institute did some years ago called Poverty Inc., which really looked at why this was failing. And Bill Easterly has been a he's a development economist who's been very critical through the years of all the different foreign aid establishment efforts (laughs) To in top-down ways try to fix other people's lives. And Billy's message always was: just leave them alone. <laughs> They'll figure out their own path the same way that, that we did. And if and we're actually a net negative by creating this foreign aid pinata that kind of hangs over them, and they spend so much time trying to figure out how do we keep this, this short-term gravy train coming and it intends not to lay the foundations for how you create long-term prosperity.
0: Yeah, teach Amanda Fish, that old parable. So what is the better path for helping these countries get out of poverty?
1: Yeah, and and I want to just say that I I don't, I always think that libertarians have a, a danger in sounding too doctrinaire, too extreme, and there's definitely a place for, emergency relief, but I'd like to say that's like actual emergencies. So sometimes the give a fish strategy might be appropriate, but it's not appropriate for long-term economic development. And part of our message has been that it's not even appropriate to take the, well, teach a man to fish. Uh, I think that also misdiagnoses the problem because you have lots of misguided efforts where people are going in and trying to teach entrepreneurship to people in poor parts of, of Southeast Asia or uh, poor, poor parts of, of Africa. And that also has this patronizing mm attitude as though people can't figure out on their own how to create <laughs> value so
0: if only sort of you knew that, how to <laughs> sell and barter for goods if you need us to teach you <laughs> exactly. yeah. that makes a lot of sense yeah, yeah. So, so what does helping look like that is actually helping and that is not paternalistic and condescending yeah. I think like the the extension
1: of that metaphor would be well uh, establish the, the the legal framework where people have the property rights that would allow them to create fisheries mm. and and similar businesses and you'll see them suddenly being able to create wealth not just for themselves or their families but their whole communities. So it's really about creating inclusive economies that give uh, rights to the poor and that's the message that we've taken to a lot of our partners around the world who are in some ways, they're m- motivated by this ideological insight about why freedom tends to work. But they also are looking very practically at what are the problems that are preventing normal people from thriving. We had this wonderful situation with our partners in Burundi, one of the poorest countries in the world, and they had this horrific problem where a lot of the the traders that would go back and forth across the borders to n- neighboring countries their whole business would be just to get a sense of what's scarce on the other side of the border. And if they had it here, then they'd be just moving goods that way, but they would be subjected to all these regulatory uh, requirements where you know, I think it was like they needed 11 different types of, of uh, paperwork to cross the border. And this would mean there was like all these different opportunities for corruption, for bribes. And then a lot of these were female traders subjected to sexual violence, just horrific situations. And our partner in Burundi simplified the process so that there was just one piece of paper that they could get renewed monthly, one point of access that they had to deal with the government in order to do the trading they were doing. So it's just like little things like that, that aren't obvious from where we sit in the US. Atlas is a US organization, but our whole modus operandi is to be really deferential to the knowledge that our partners have of what's actually the priority on the ground. And we can help them think through their business plan, help them learn from others. But it's really that the exciting part of our work is that we're working with people who believe in economic liberty, but also who have insights into what the challenges are that, that actually make a difference in letting people build wealth for themselves.
0: That doesn't sound like exploitative capitalism to me at all. (laughs) How how do you uh, deal with the challenge that, look, it's you just shouldn't be there. And capitalism and free markets in general are exploitative and keep people more oppressed. Like that is a growing pervasive piece of thought here in America that I'm sure you're running up against more as society kind of changes. How do you answer that?
1: Yeah, it's really fun that, that we get to work with so many great scholars from different parts of the world, and we, we have a wonderful woman who works with our African initiatives named Magat Wade, who herself is a student of George Aiedi, a Ghanaian economist who passed away about a year and a half ago, and, and she's a, a wonderful proponent of this idea that Africans have this wonderfully rich uh, trading history, and really the, the colonial legacy that they suffer from is that of, of bureaucracies that were left over by the European colonial governments that were set up when African nations got their independence. The big mistake was that they just assumed that you could get rid of the, uh, the European governor and then put in the native governor. But if the institutions that they and bureaucracies they were running were the same, they're going to have the same bad results. So I think that it's a really important part of the battle of ideas is to show how there are classical liberal foundations to so many societies and to reject this idea that it's somehow a a sort of a Western imposition, that that these ideas are actually part of a, a natural liberty heritage that you can find in almost every society. Before, you had, I would say, the, the bad Western ideas are the ones that came from Rousseau and Marx, and <laughs> those yeah. are some Western thinkers that have screwed up uh, a lot of nations around the world. Let's blame them for
0: ones. But don't get us started. We'll go on forever. So one of the, one of the things that you talked about in that article is the, one of the challenges is the different concepts of freedom, right? So I think to you, and yeah. I'm here in Indianapolis, I don't know where you're at, but we have one version of freedom. Right. And even within our own communities, our grandparents or our sister may have a different version of freedom, right? But when a group dedicated to expanding freedom goes across the across the world into different cultures with different sets of preconceptions and worldviews, what does that look like? What are some different views of freedom? Uh, I think liberty, I think that's just, look, liberty from the state, right? But freedom… What does that look like in other places, help expand our vision as American libertarians? And then how does that present challenges?
1: Yeah, it's an, a complicated question. I guess it, part of what I find myself trying to do is just find a, a lot of common ground. And and thankfully, I think that our classical liberal principles give us the vocabulary for that. Right now, I think there's a lot of tensions in the U.S., as you've had the, the old fusionist coalition that Bill Buckley, Ronald Reagan would celebrate and said, Hey, libertarians can work with social conservatives and anti-communist sort of foreign policy hawks, because there was a lot of, there was enough common ground that we could get some things done. And it led to some, I think some positive results for those of us of a more libertarian persuasion. Now with the the turn here in the U S and I think in, they see it in a lot of Europe also, towards the ideas of national conservatives, conservativism. We're losing that appreciation for individual liberty as the, the, the basis for what we're doing. But I do think that part of the good news that Atlas Network gets to share is that when in, in places all over the world where a lot of our fundamental liberties are not enjoyed, when we talk about our friends in Muslim-majority countries who are really fighting for tolerance and free speech, and, and free society values like within their own context, but they're doing some courageous work that is, helps us remember that we can't take for granted, we shouldn't take for granted all the blessings that we have about living in a society that, that tends to appreciate some of those basic values.
0: All right. I, I promise to keep you at a half an hour. I could talk to you forever and hope to have you back very soon to talk about some stuff. But it is shameless self-promotion time and I don't want to go without asking, where can people get involved? Do you have events that people could attend? What is Atlas Liberty working on and what else would you like to promote?
1: Yeah, at atlasnetwork.org, you can get a sense of the work that we do. If you're in the freedom movement, we have the best training curriculum for organizations that are trying to learn from their peers throughout the world and in, in, in getting better at the work we're doing to promote ideas and public policy uh, options based on sound ideas of liberty. And, and what I, I think some of your, your viewers are probably especially is we have five international events that we run each year, the largest of which is in New York uh, every November. It's called our Liberty Forum, attached to a gala freedom dinner where we celebrate some of the most wow. impactful work that's being done for Liberty. And it's there that you can meet people from usually there's 70 countries represented Uh, uh, people from our partners who are doing some real inspiring work, sometimes at great personal risk, so getting to meet those people, learn how they see the world and and cheer them on is I think a very worthwhile thing and also really energizing when you realize you can be part of this community that's taking an active leadership role in showing how pro-liberty ideas work in
0: practice All right, Brad Lips, thanks so much for joining me here on the show
1: Yeah, thanks so much Chris A lot of fun
0: And thank you for joining us here on the program. We appreciate you. And if you learned something, share it. Please also leave a rating and review on iTunes or Spotify. And if you have any questions or comments about this episode, go to Spangle.com and leave one there. Thank you so much for joining us here on The Chris Spangle Show.